This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a prime minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin ear as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And we are in the same place. I know. We are actually eyeballing each other, staring each other down. In the flesh for more than a year. It's incredible. It's almost too much for me. Soon we're going to be joined also in the flesh by Laura Tingle, 730's chief political correspondent, to talk about Christine Holgate. If you've been hiding under a rock or something, you might not know Christine Holgate. She's the former CEO of Australia Post. She broke a silence this week, um, told a Senate inquiry that she felt humiliated, bullied and pushed out of her job at Australia Post over the Cartier Watches affair. And she was demanding an apology from the Prime Minister for publicly calling on her to go. The Prime Minister, though, was not for turning. What I stated in the Parliament was, if the Chief Executive and the indication had been that this might be the case, was not prepared to stand aside and then that she might wish to leave the company. I reflected that in the Parliament. Now, it was a willing day in the Parliament. Um, The language in the Parliament was very strong. It was not my intention to cause distress to Christine Holgate, and I regret any distress that that uh, strong language uh, may have caused to her, indeed did cause to her. That was not my intention. So regret, distress, but no apology. And we're going to get into Sorry this. you felt that way. Yeah, sorry you felt that way. I'm sorry if you felt that I did that to you. Are we going to get into this with Laura a little later because she interviewed Christine Holgate on 7.30 the night of that Senate inquiry. But PK, it was a big week this week for the Prime Minister on another front too and for the nation really. The Prime Minister called for reinforcements and has enlisted the states and territories to get the national vaccine rollout back on track. He's announced National Cabinet will now meet twice a week. We haven't done that since way back at the start of the lockdown um, and that's going to happen for the foreseeable future. The states were always involved in the vaccination program. Of course, they had to be involved with vaccinating their quarantine workers, their frontline workers, but the Commonwealth was really running the show and under their guidance, the vaccine rollout went way behind schedule. GPs have been calling out for supply, saying that people can't get a GP appointment. The aged care and the disability care sector say, well, they haven't even come to us yet and we're supposed to be the priority. Um, So this call from the Prime Minister, I think it's an acknowledgement that the Commonwealth needs help. The states have been offered they're the ones who are really good at service delivery. They do it all the time. And the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has been saying for weeks now, basically, just give us the doses, we'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it. And and we know based on history that the states are better at doing this. So, in fact, I, I see it as a bungle from the beginning, the whole execution of this. Yes, there's the issue of supply and, you know, having meetings twice a week isn't going to fundamentally change that unless you can really rearrange all of that system and and trying to get more supply into the country. But the government took too long to agree to these mass vaccination hubs. Uh, Now the Prime Minister has said yes, and in fact that's going to be the strategy by the end of the year, these mass vaccination hubs, when the last part of the AstraZeneca supply comes in. So there's going to be like football stadiums or convention centres and things like that. Yeah, and done really quickly, right? But... You know, it all goes back, obviously, to the AstraZeneca decision. That was a huge blow when the government accepted the health advice that it should not be given to people under 50. That was obviously going further than the UK advice. 
you know, ironically, our success is why we went further because we do have low transmission. So it's a cost benefit analysis. Why would you take a higher risk when you don't have the virus sort of going through um, and, and ripping through your community? Now, the countries that are doing their vaccination well, again, are the countries that have been hit by coronavirus so badly. I'm actually not that surprised by that. It's been considered quite surprising by people because they've been, they failed on the other fronts. Makes sense to me that you'd kind of make sure that your vaccination program was working when people were dying in high numbers. In Australia, I think that there has been a sense of complacency. I'm not justifying. I think it's been the wrong way to go forward. But that sense of urgency hasn't been there. And that has led, I think, to the problems we've seen. Now, I think taking this long to announce having two meetings a week is a bit strange. I don't know why this didn't happen at the beginning. I know why. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think because the Prime Minister thought they could do this and they would get a lot of kudos for this. Remember, this might have been an election year Mm. and the Prime Minister, there was a lot of talk about the fact that this would be, you know, we'd get the whole nation vaccinated and we'd go to the polls. Then that kind of didn't work because the vaccination program, even when things were going smoothly, wasn't going to happen in time. But the Prime Minister at the beginning of this year, his first speech said, this is my number one priority, to roll out this this vaccination. In fact, he was criticised by many for not having much of an agenda except rolling the vaccine out, and look how it's gone. I mean, he, his talk now of we're on a war footing, you know, if we're on a war footing, the Commonwealth look like Dad's army, to be yeah, frank. Yeah, it doesn't look like a, gr- a great war strategy, it, does it? Well, it doesn't look like a great fighting unit either. Yeah. To, you know, there's a, me- there's a metaphor they use or saying they have in the army, which is it goes to the, the five Ps prior preparation prevents poor performance or some of them say piss poor performance add another p in there for good measure and the prior planning i think is what's going to right here we had time to plan we built that in we didn't need to rush because we didn't have community transmission much was made from that we're going to look at the mistakes made overseas we're going to get it right here and what's happened? They haven't got it right. Things aren't being delivered no. to the aged care homes. They're not being delivered to the disability And if you look sector. at the way it's been handled, right, now there's the, this, we're recording this Thursday morning, late in the week pivot to the war footing, to the cabinet meetings, to the sending Dan Tian, uh, the minister, off overseas. Dispatching to try, Dan Dispatching. Tien. He's dispatched to try and, and work out, you know, that our pipeline is, is secure, that we're going to get these Pfizer doses. But if you look at the way it was handled earlier in the week, it again was a bungle. The Prime Minister announcing on Facebook that he was going to abandon the targets. No there targets, no timeline. Huge backlash to that. So now we're recording on a Thursday morning. There's been this pivot where he says, yeah, he hopes that by the end of the year everyone gets their dose. So he's actually strengthened the language again. Not quite a commitment, but ugh, trying to say we're going to try and do it because saying there's we can't give you a timeline was politically, I think, really problematic. Yeah, but it goes to the other point because there's been criticism of the Prime Minister or the government really of over-promising and under-delivering and the promise was we're going to get it all done, everyone's going to have their jab by October, then it was the first jab by October, now at the end of the year, then it was no timeline, now it's hopefully the end of the year. The government points out you can't be precise, we're in a pandemic. Fair enough. We've had supply hiccups. We didn't know that the Europeans were going to say, no, you can't send that Pfizer Mm. to Australia. We need it here. We didn't know that. We didn't know AstraZeneca was going to get revised down to be not so safe for people under 50s. No, but we did get a hint. Well, 
and experts looking on go, you can factor these things in mm. and you should factor these things in. Labor was saying from the middle of last year, we're too slow in getting our vaccine orders in. Other countries have got deals with four or five or even six suppliers. We don't have any yet. That was July. We got our deals done by, I think, November, but only really with AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and then for Moderna later in the year. You know, people were worried that wasn't enough. We didn't have insurance enough. So for the government to say, well, rightly, we've got a supply problem, that's true. But part of that goes back to the five Ps, prior planning, yeah. uh, prevents piss poor performance. And of course, I think it's, it's a welcome change to see them working together in a more coordinated way for the states to play a bigger role for mass vaccination sites. I do think that's a good idea. But you've got to wonder whether this is all about spreading the political the responsibility too, right? Whether this is like shoving the blame because this doesn't look like it's going to work out quite as well as you thought it would. Yeah. Originally say, the Commonwealth was going to manage it. Yeah. Well, now we're all in charge. Yeah, yeah, everyone's in charge. And when everyone's in charge, Fran, what, what happens? The blame is spread around. Correct. Or, or there's just a blame game. Should we bring in our guest? I reckon we should. <laughs> Laura Tingle, 730's Chief Political Correspondent. And this week it's presented to friend of the podcast, Welcome to the Party Room. Thank you very much. Sorry, I just had to get the straw out of my mouth from my martini. Because from not, only, party. not only is Laura a friend of the party room, she's a party animal. Yeah. So, like, it's always... Fran, party animals are a bit sort of, you know, not correct these days. <laughs> oh, just saying. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. That's what she's doing. That's what she does. Not in Parliament House, so it's okay to be a party animal. Let's talk about Christine Holgate because the comments from her, this all started, the whole affair actually started, Laura, at a Senate inquiry last October when Labor suddenly started asking questions about Cartier watches being handed out to Australia Post executives. The Prime Minister heard about this later in the day, was outraged, he vented with a very strong, very personally directed message in the Parliament to Christine Holgate that most people listening heard it as she should quit. That's how a lot of us heard it, I think. An investigation was held. She was later cleared of any wrongdoing, but she'd already stood aside. And this week she chose that same Senate committee, I think it was, to make her feelings known. I was humiliated and driven to despair. I was thrown under the bus so the chairman of Australia Post could curry favour with his political masters. But I'm still here and I'm stronger for surviving it. Bullied and humiliated, Laura. Two words the Prime Minister's been fending off a lot lately <laughs> from yeah. women. Mm. And, but she wasn't supposed to take offence at that, Fran. No, no offence was intended. Mm. You interviewed her that evening mm. after she'd been before the Senate inquiry. She told you very clearly she believed the PM uh, attacked her. The, the attack was gender-based, that the fact she was a woman was a part of the tone of that attack, if not the attack itself. The Prime Minister himself said gender had nothing to do with it. What do you think? <coughs> and what did um, you think at the time, actually? Can we go back a couple of steps? Is that yeah. all right? Just to yeah, make sure. You know, I'll, I'll do that politician thing of saying... Um, I'll, know, I'll answer the question it. I want to answer. Yeah, yeah. No, but but I, I just sort of think it's important because they've skated through under all the noise about this, but this was basically a Labor attack. You know, yes. La yes. Labor went for, for this woman. You know, there was all sorts of uh, skullduggery going on in Australia Post, which I'm presuming that some of the unions didn't like. So they went for her. And Anthony Albanese asked a very pointed question which provoked that response from Scott Morrison, which was how in the midst of this terrible recession could this be happening? So just want to put that on the record. Without a doubt, though, before we get to gender, 
the response was, as I said, you know, on the needles in the strawberries category scale. You know, it was just beyond belief in the circumstances that we're facing that he went so feral over this, you know, bad look. Which, so, in fact, didn't happen during the pandemic. It happened it two, two years, years ago. ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it was it was sort of, once again, he hadn't done his homework on it. And as she said to me, and as I think she said in the Senate inquiry, nobody actually rang up and yeah. said, uh, what was this about? You know, what was what was this deal about? You know, mm. Oh, it was saving 3,000 small businesses. Gee, wait a minute. That, Hang uh, on, we're oh, the Liberal Party. That's we're the Liberal Party. That's really good. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So nobody asked her. They just went for it. And I don't know the extent to which it was initially gender-based. I think there's this sort of secondary question that comes out about the extent to which, as she says, she was unpopular because she opposed this Boston Consulting Group report, which looks like it was basically being sort of uh, set up to further privatise Australia Post. But without a doubt, you know, you look at the way she was treated and the way blokes... Yeah, but it's all by comparison. That's where the gender Absolutely. analysis And it's all through the current lens, which Ab- we're operating in now. Absolutely, which would make you, you would think, you know, doubly careful about what you were saying about any of this stuff. But without a doubt, his language was just unbelievable. You know, to be attacking somebody who is one of the senior uh, Australian female business figures like that was just in the parliament. It was, uh, I just think, Extraordinary. I remember at the time, uh, I thought giving Cartier watches was not appropriate. I thought, no, well, that's, I said that that's a terrible look. We shouldn't be doing that. But I was talking to Helen Haynes on Breakfast. Mm. She's the independent member for Indi. And she said that she remembers at the time in the parliament being really shocked by the Prime Minister's tone. She hadn't heard that tone from him before. She left Question Time and went out to find specifically find out the circumstances of what had gone on because she was so surprised and I think a bit distressed by mm. the Prime Minister's tone. So so there was definitely a vibe there that people mm. thought his tone was over the top reaction, even if giving Cartier watches to uh, Australia Post that's, executives. That's was right, not okay. and not only that. Now the defence is, which I think is so extraordinary, the Labor Party made us do it. Yeah, oh, yeah. exactly. You know. What? <laughs> well, well they, they also, did. Wait, <laughs> they also asked you to make Christian Porter, uh, yeah. you know, a yeah. backbencher. They also asked you to get rid You didn't no, no. do those things. No, they, they didn't. And he gets himself into these terrible knots, doesn't he? Like sort of saying, well, you know, I didn't mean to cause her any offence or upset. I mean... Really, sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, at the same time, this is, I'm pretty sure that the Prime Minister's various stages has said, you know, there are a lot of people hurting here, you know, about ministers who have been in trouble, you know, and that families have been broken up and, you know, so therefore we've got to be careful about what we say about the fact yeah, that people are under pressure. People are under pressure. Yeah, sorry. Didn't matter for her. And no. also, and I think this came out in your interview particularly, but none of these politicians seem to ever ring up people yeah. and speak privately to them and say, hey, are you okay? She knew many of these ministers. She worked closely yeah. for the nation um, with some of these ministers. And I think she said to you, still to this day, she hasn't had phone calls. I'm not sure if that's correct. Uh, well, the, I think the one exception really was, I mean, she had, I think, some business-like communications with Paul Fletcher, but she co-chairs the trade board with uh, Simon Birmingham mm-hmm. and he he did speak to her and he spoke to her for about 45 minutes uh, and she was sort of grateful for that. Yes. But eventually, and she, he said, well, you've got to send it to Fletcher because he's the minister, what you're going to say. Oh, that's and right. Stuff. He said, we'll see what we can do yeah, or and, something. You know, and then, you know, your Radio people will call my people and, and all that stuff. But I think, think the other thing that was extraordinary and really fascinating out of that was nobody from the board supported her other than Tony Nutt. And 
you guys both and know. Let's say who Tony Nunn yeah, is. Tony Nunn yeah. was, of, of course, Liberal Party federal director, but more importantly, he was the fix it guy for John Howard for years. Like when there were problems like people harassing people on Facebook or whatever, he was the guy who went round and banged heads together. Now, I think it's really fascinating that he was the guy who made 14 phone calls to Christine Holgate in the wake of that Senate inquiry hearing about the watches, and she says was trying to support her. Meanwhile, Australia Post is cutting off her emails, won't give her her phone records. There's uh, one woman from Australia Post, Sue Davies, who was helping her and a couple of others who were doing their best. But the board just cut her absolutely adrift. And I thought one of the other really devastating parts of that Senate inquiry was her going through the list of who's on the Australia Post board mm. and what their connections are with the government. Mm-hmm. And that's, and to that's the at Liberal the centre of... Particular. Yeah. At, the, at the centre of this is the claim that the Prime Minister's comments Mm. in Parliament meant that basically it was a sacking. She's sure she um, resigned, right, officially, but because she was basically told her position's untenable because of his commentary. That's what she Let's just remind people what he said. He said she should stand aside. If she doesn't, she must go. Well, the thing is, it was quite a long answer, and that's the the colourful bit that keeps getting played. But if you actually look or listen to what he says That's why we get Laura here for context. (laughs) What he actually says is he's boasting and claiming responsibility for this. He says, as soon as I heard this, I was appalled. This was disgraceful. I rang the shareholder ministers and several steps were taken immediately, including that she should stand aside, right? Now, they're now saying, oh, well, we only ever wanted her to stand aside. Well, sorry, they were talking stood down. It was a pasting. It was a pasting. He sort of directed that. She clearly understood that that was the instruction that was being passed down by the chairman who didn't actually really tell her directly that. And so he was, you know, on the day he was taking credit for, you know, acting so... He was. He was being a strong man. Decisively. He was being a strong man. I'm acting decisively about this. This is not on Cartier Watches. She felt like her position was untenable, which is why she resigned. Yeah, but and she and she said to me in the interview, she said, look, it's just ludicrous to say that you can stand aside from a multi-billion dollar corporation and then come back, particularly at Christmas time if it's Australia Post. Yeah. But she said that the whole organisation's confidence was shattered by that vote of no confidence in, in me her. and in what we had done. And there was a comparison the very next day. I think it was the very next day when it was revealed that the head of ASIC mm. had been claiming all, been paid all this money for, I think, getting his tax affairs in order because they'd wooed him from overseas. Mm, looked like Too a much good deal. Money. Tens and tens and tens and thousands of dollars, much more than anyone ever anticipated it would be. It was not appropriate, the Auditor General found. And there was not this kind of extreme hysterical calls for, you know, I'm going to ring him up and I'm going to tell him what's what, was there? To well, there James wasn't. Shipton. And there certainly wasn't with, uh, with the NBN bonuses, which also emerged subsequently. And I think, you know, beyond the issues of just her appalling treatment, there is this really interesting question about Look, the Liberal Party has privatised lots of organisations, it's corporatised lots of organisations, and the whole idea of that is that you make them independent of government and accountable for their own actions. And so the Prime Minister sort of getting up on his high horse yesterday and saying, the real issue for me was that she'd said that it wasn't taxpayer money. Well, one of those things is, is it taxpayer money or not? The watches came out of money. She was allocated to be able to give, she was Mm. able to give these people bonuses of 150,000. That was within her remit. But they came out of the Australia Post balance sheet, which is now a separate entity to the federal government. And one of the reasons why that deal behind the Cartier watches was so important was because the federal government has starved, as it has of quite a few 
yeah. corporations we could mention, of money, and it needed to get a private sector capital injection in to keep banks in uh, 55% of the rural communities in Australia who would have lost them otherwise. I think that most people think Australia Post is taxpayers' money. And they, they think we own and it. And that's why we, the we, government yeah. is now... The Prime Minister's language I actually thought was quite clever around this. This, oh, I'm sorry for how she feels. Well, no, sorry, not the S word. Uh, he regrets how she feels. But then talking about public money and Australia Post yeah. being... It, that's what he wants us to think, yeah, sort of even like, though that's not the fact. Yeah, she yeah, now acknowledges it's, it's, it was a bad look. It was a, it was bad language, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it was bad language like Cartier Watches was a bad look, but they have made her responsible for how taxpayers' money is spent and given her the authority to do that. So, you know, I just think uh, they can't have it both ways. No. All right, let's move to the other huge issue which affects every Australian, of course. We were talking about vaccines earlier, Laura. The government did not want this distraction this week. Uh, The polls are showing people are losing confidence in their vaccine rollout, and that's not surprising. What rollout? Can you get the jab? I know. Stumble out? No, it's (laughs) not really happening. This is Scott Morrison's self-declared, as Fran was saying a little earlier, number one priority of the year. The New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian, she has been really critical uh, of the government throughout the week. Here she is. There'll become a point when the rest of the world starts engaging with each other more and we can't afford to be left behind. We want our citizens to be safe. So I'm really keen to get the rollout happening as fast as we can. I do have a sense of urgency about it. Sense of urgency. Now, that comment came right after the Prime Minister on Facebook walked away from the targets. Uh, The targets aren't officially back, but now he wants mass vaccination hubs to try and get people, you know, with the jab by the end of the year. What went wrong? With the whole thing? Yeah. (laughs) Look, uh, what is underlying all of this? What what have we learnt through the pandemic? That the federal government cannot do service delivery. How are they getting jabs out to nursing homes? They're doing it via contracting out. Mm. Otherwise, they're doing it through the GP network. Why is that? Partly because they don't probably have other infrastructure and partly because they were lobbied by the AMA. That is the reality of it. Uh, the whole thing is, once again, it's the announcement versus the delivery. I was told by a very reliable source that uh, Greg Hunt was told not to announce the 1B rollout, which was to people who weren't frontline workers and stuff, who people over 70, until the GP network had been informed what was going to go on. He ignored that advice went ahead with the announcement because, you know, he likes to have announcements. And suddenly the GPs come in on the Monday morning, their systems have all their crashed. Their phones are going nuts. Yeah. yeah. Half of them have worked out that logistically they can't do this or the other others who did want to do it haven't had their fridges arrive or they don't have the extra staff yet. Or well, they've uh, got three doses. So. Or, or, or you, know, you know, I mean, you, you look at those daily figures. Yeah. I mean, in Canberra, for example, and I think it's probably the case the rest of the, around the rest of the country, they're getting 40 or 50 doses a week. Uh, now, okay, it might accelerate, but remember all those tours of the CSL laboratories? I mean, I, I kept asking people yesterday, I said, is there some problem with this that we haven't heard of? Is that, well, I is read this week that 800,000 doses are being prepared, are being actually produced by CSL yeah. at the moment or within a week will be. I mean, that's a lot. Where are they? Yeah. We also heard this week, and I think this is shameful, that in disability residences, yeah. there's hundreds and hundreds of them who have not heard anything. They're the first priority. They're that 1A priority rollout, and they haven't heard a thing. So where are all these doses? Well, and I mean, there are all sorts of questions. One of them is, and uh, we had a couple of epidemiologists on um, 7.30 last night, and their point 
was, uh, or one of their points was they shouldn't have actually been worried so much about giving everyone, say, the old people the shots. The risk to the old people was from the workforce yeah. mm. and they should have been giving them the shots. Yeah. But that wasn't happening. Now, and, and I find, you know, they keep throwing around all these figures. Like, for example, they keep saying, oh, well, we've given, I think it was the last look, about 150,000 shots in aged care, brackets, asterisk, about 50,000 of them are second shots. Um, and we've covered about 500 establishments. Now, 100,000 people is about half the aged care residential uh, population. So they've only done half of them. And there are about 3,000 residential aged care facilities, and they've only done 500. So you know, debacle. So what do they do now? Because confidence is key. We all know that for yep. a vaccination rollout. There's enough vaccination denial that goes on to anyway threaten a program, let alone if confidence go- GPs are saying they've had people ring up and cancel yeah. since the mm. AstraZeneca um, hurdle um, became public. So what do they do now? There's calls for them to be daily announcing vaccine vaccine numbers. Or w- what does the government need to do? Well, they, they, um, they have started do- to do that, but I've got to say that that only sort of reinforces how few I think yeah. have really been done. Um, but it's good to have the transparency, it, to be fair, well, just that to much transparency, mm. but they actually don't tell you very much. They don't tell you how much uh, Pfizer, they don't tell you how no. much AstraZeneca, they don't tell you, they really don't give you a, a an age down. profile or a, no. uh, uh, whatever. They um, pick and choose for a big number. Yeah, so once again, our epidemiologists last night were saying that, that actually it's not useful data. I don't know how they actually restore confidence in the vaccines themselves. Their main problem now is the supply thing, which is why I think it is really interesting that the CSL thing seems to have gone so quiet. Maybe it's ramping up. We just haven't heard about it. Hope so. Um, but I think uh, they will have to basically surrender, get the states to run mass vaccination centres. I think um, particularly as the, uh, you know, because GPs won't be able to deal with the, no. with, the, with the load, particularly with flu vaccines coming up as well. Mm. Um, I think people will at some point just go, well, they'll make their own calls, but they'll say, look, I do want to go overseas or I do want to get this job. And it'll be a bit like climate change, you know, where the market basically makes people go, I think it's worth my while taking the risk. And I think it's important to say it it is worth the while. I mean, it is going to be a good idea to be vaccinated. Mm. And by and large, if you speak to most medical experts, they say the vaccines are safe Mm. and we need to get that message Mm. out. But it's just been clouded. Yeah. And and, and particularly for older people, if you think about it, particularly ones who are sort of website challenged, you know, um, and you've got to book things online. They're just going to give up and go away uh, if if they're trying to get and they and you know they go to their GP their GP says oh no we don't do it you can try somebody else they go to the other practice and Mm. the other practice says well you're not one of our patients so rack off Mm. those are the sorts of holes Mm. that they've really got to yeah and you look at just one last comment just the way that at the beginning of the crisis you know there were the fever clinics and all of this rolled out it is just astonishing that we didn't take a similar kind of big bang approach to this. Well, of course, they were run by the states just saying, PK. Well, that's the thing. And now <laughs> we've gone back to that model and, and it's, you know, it speaks volumes really about what the Prime Minister realised and the heat he was clearly under. Now, we're recording this podcast on a Thursday morning like we do. We always tell you that. Today, Laura, as it turns out, it marks 30 years to the day since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody on April the 15th, 1991. Of those 339 recommendations, very few have been acted on. It's been pointed out that I think it's over 60% have been acted on. But if you listen to the groups that matter, that scrutinise this, they say meaningful and full implementation hasn't happened. So that's the important caveat there. 
More than 450 Indigenous Australians have died in custody in the past 30 years, including five since the beginning of March this year. So it's quite real and, and it's happening now. The Prime Minister has been under pressure to meet with the families who are grieving. I want to mention this this comparison because I think it speaks to the powerlessness of Aboriginal people in this country. When women were marching, and they still will, but when that big march happened, March for Justice, uh, and there was this discussion, the Prime Minister offered those women a private meeting. They wanted him to come out, whatever, it's irrelevant. These people are very happy for a private meeting. They say, we don't have the luxury of asking for it publicly. We just want to get in front of this guy. Mm. It hasn't, as we record, it might, might be later, I'm not sure, but right now, no meeting. Why has the federal government kind of gone, it's just the state's issue. Uh, there's been a real lack of responsibility, hasn't there, well, look, I owning this? I think there's a generational thing here. I, you know, Fran, you were interviewing people about this this morning um, and we, we did a piece on it last night as well. But you know, Patrick Dodson, for example, he, he is a bit of a consistent figure yeah. in, of, in all of this time. But you think about all the generations of police, all the generations of state politicians and particularly all the generations of federal politicians who have got no recollection of the days when Indigenous issues were actually regarded as something important for the federal government to look at, that it needed to take ownership of the issue, that it needed to push the states on things. Now, the sorts of issues that they're talking about, the age of criminality, you know, being raised and all those sorts of things, you need, dare one say, national leadership. And there is absolutely... If anything, we've gone so sort of significantly backwards on Indigenous affairs actually being taken seriously, you know, from the symbolic, you know, to the, from the fact that instead of just doing the welcome to country, we do the cheerio to defence veterans, you know, um, to the really significant issues, they just don't want to know about it because they have none of them have ever been engaged in it. I mean, somebody made the observation that one of the problems for John Howard was that, uh, as Prime Minister, was that he, when he'd been in opposition, when he'd been in government, he had never actually engaged in the Indigenous affairs debates. And I think that's the problem for all of these guys. They've never actually had to sit down and think about it. But still, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken White, is... Is Indigenous. Is Indigenous. He is... And he's, he's and, and he's quietly and, working on some of these issues, and and, and he's also been quietly sidelined. Yeah. I think you'd have to observe. That's, you know? Absolutely, he gave a speech at the press club, and within you know half an hour of him finishing, yep. um, he was being backgrounded against. Oh well, that's yep. never going to happen. Yep. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, we've invited him on the program all week to mark this important week, and he did not agree to an interview. No, I mean, he spoke to seven thirty though. But either way, there has been. And it's a, and I know some of the sort of key figures in Indigenous affairs, Noel Pearson, mm. Marcy Langton, um, Megan Davis, there's many others, have been frustrated at this kind of, hang on a minute, what's happening mm. at that level? And if you look at the Constitution, remember 1967? Yeah, it was all about that. It's the Commonwealth's job. It's sort of like quarantine's the Commonwealth job, but, you know, mm. yeah, whatever. It's incredibly mm. frustrating. Yeah. Um, I just want to end on the point you made about the age of criminal responsibility. This is a can that's been kicked down the road. The Attorney-General's met all of them last year. Now the Attorney-General has changed. It's been a meeting this year. They haven't agreed to it. Ten-year-olds are held criminally responsible in this country, right? That is not the international standard best practice. 
and that's ten-year-olds, back, that's, and that's gone backwards from the time of the Royal Commission, right? It's disgraceful. Like I have a nine-year-old that I love her, but she should never be held responsible for anything. Because, right? because <laughs> let's say what that means, PK. That means but, okay, they're not putting ten-year-olds in adult prisons, but they are putting twelve-year-olds because it's legal under the law. I'm not saying they're adult prisons, but they're locking kids up from the age of twelve. Kids from the age of ten are getting a record, which means at that early age, they're being propelled into that criminal justice system into mm. that penal, you know. But no one prison can test this. As soon as you interact with that, that system, you are largely in it forever. Gone. You're gone. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this is a no-brainer. You'd think they'd be able to do that alone, let alone all the other But it's a no-brainer. They had the Royal Commission into the Dondale, um, in, the Dondale Inquiry. They found that no child there under the age of 14 should be locked up, but they still haven't made that the law. Mm. They still haven't changed that. Mm. Gone backwards. Depressing. Well, doesn't really cover it, does it, anyway? Shame on that probably does. very sombre note. We can't pretend anything's upbeat, but we can say goodbye to you. Yeah, <laughs> well, yes, goodbye. We, we, we got through all of that depressing news, so yeah. nice to see you both. Great anyway. to see, see you again, Laura. See ya. Bye. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. Parliament's not sitting, actually, but... We've got question time anyway because yeah, we're constant. Uh, we, we never put down the tools. PK, this week's question comes from Diane who writes, do you think the way politicians speak to each other in the House will ever change? Why do they have to be so rude to each other during question time? Look, I don't think it's going to change in my lifetime. I think lots of things could change in the faraway future, like look at the world today compared to 200 years ago. But no, the culture of that place is a really, um, it's really masculine and pumped up and there's a lot of, uh, what did the Prime Minister call it this week when he was referring to his strong willing? language? Willing. It's a willing place. Uh, so I don't think it's going to, to change. Uh, I, I actually do think it's, I don't mean to sound too sort of like choir girl or something, but it is a bit rude. It is rude. I don't, I don't love, I don't mind a bit of robust pop political discourse, but I find it sometimes mean and I don't like mean. No, well, often what's mean, if you get to sit in the gallery, if you're down in Canberra and you're at Parliament House, you get to, you can hear some really mean things. Like mm. I, I was shocked when I heard someone many years ago yell out to Jenny Macklin, who was the Shadow Health Minister, where's your broom? Go get yeah. your broom. In other words, you know, you're a witch. Things have got much worse since then. I'm a little, talking about Pollyanna, I'm a little bit more Pollyanna in the fact I think things can change and will change when there is uh, a greater percentage of women in the parliament because mostly it's not the women doing the really nasty sledging. That's not to say women are perfect and this is an adversarial system we have. I covered politics. I was the Europe correspondent for a while, so I used to go and pay attention to question time in the British Parliament. It's much more polite, but I found it more boring myself. Mm. I kind of, I like something about the adversarial system we have. We have a two-party system, but I think it's gotten much worse and it needs to come back. Surely you can be robust, interesting, passionate. Interesting would be good. Dorothy Dix's are just like a dead hand. Yeah. On but without being debate, it's a waste of space. Mean, cruel, sledging, personal, I think misogynistic. So. It, it wouldn't be that hard. Anyway, I'm not as hopeful as you, but 
maybe that's just, it's been a tough year. There's nothing more delightful than coming back after a holiday. I mean, we were off just for, for last week and having an, an inbox full of your questions. So keep sending them in. You can tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room. You can email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us, of course, The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app, wherever that is. Rate, review, all of that. We love to know you're there and you're listening and tell others about it too. Do it. Um, well, that's it for the party room this week. How exciting to be in person with you, Fran. It makes all the difference. I'm loving it. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.